This morning at the forum, we're going to talk about uh, Candlemas, this funny feast that we're celebrating today. We're also going to touch on the whole of the liturgical year. We're going to talk about what it is to be a people who do church seasons. Uh, and I gave that a title. I said, what does it mean to live on life in sacred time? So Candlemas and life in sacred time. And so I want to start out with a question, and I've got the microphone so that everybody can hear us. Um, but what is sacred? What does sacred mean? Anybody? What is sacred? Rudy? Holy. Oh. Holy? Holy. What else? You can shout out. I'll repeat after you. What does sacred mean? What do you think of? What images come to mind when you hear the word sacred? Revered. Revered. What else? Set apart. Set apart. There's the literal meaning of sacred. Thanks, Lisa. Um, so, set apart. To make something sacred, to make something holy, is to set it apart. The word in Hebrew, kadosh, um, which means to to make holy or holy, that the words that we say, holy, 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 they repeat in the synagogue every um, Saturday, and they say, kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. That word is connected to the word to cut, to separate, to make holy, to set apart. So it is, in some ways, what is sacred is what we set apart. Think about it. We set apart certain spaces as sacred spaces, we have spent a lot of money setting apart a sacred space here at Holy Communion this year. And that's true across time and across culture. There's a lot of energy put into setting aside sacred space. But there's also this tradition of setting aside sacred time. Sacred time. It's time that is set apart. Uh, the other thing to say about time is that it's cyclical, right? Um, we go through cycles. We repeat the year again and again and again. This is an image um, by an Episcopal priest named Jennifer Gamber. It's not actually this year. I couldn't find this year, so don't get too focused in on the numbers. Not that you can see them anyway. But you'll see a similar image to this if you walk into our godly playroom downstairs. Uh, the kids can always point to you where we are on the circle of the liturgical year. And so you have this circle, this, this complete circle. What do you notice about this liturgical year? What do you notice about the representation? It's mostly green. Yeah, we get a little sick of green, I think, sometimes. So Holy Communion sometimes stretches seasons. That's one of the things to say about Candlemas. Because we had the Feast of the Presentation on a Sunday this year, we decided to keep the white outfits and the white coverings on the altar all the way through to today. And then next Sunday, we'll switch to that green set that Shirley talked about in her Senior Warden's Report last week that's our Celebrating Our Diversity set. Um, there's a lot of African cloth in there, and, and that you know makes some sense to do, have that up for Black History Month, so we'll start that next week. But sometimes green can get a little long. There are churches that will carve out a little bit of the green at the end of um, the big chunk of green that starts whenever Pentecost is, and runs until um, the end of the year. There are churches that will carve out a little bit and do a season of creation uh, as well. 
we haven't talked about doing that around here. It's something I could see us doing. It's not something that is huge throughout the Roman Catholic and Orthodox and whole ecumenical world, but some Episcopal and Lutheran churches have started doing a little season of creation as well. Um, you'll also notice Advent is blue on this calendar. Um, we made that switch around here pretty close to after I got here, um, partly because our Lenten stuff, our purple was pretty Lenten. It had like crowns of thorns and things on it, and partly because I just really like the color blue. Um, there are people that will argue that the colors have all sorts of ancient significance, um, and that the blue comes from Salisbury Cathedral. There are people that call it Serum Blue, which would tie it to Salisbury Cathedral. And that's a wonderful fairy tale. Um, the reality is that there were different colors of vestments, and for a really long time, it was the tradition just to wear whatever your newest, nicest set was on the High Holy Days. So if your newest, nicest set was purple, you might wear purple for Easter which terrifies Episcopalians today, especially altar guilds. This idea of purple on Easter doesn't make any sense. But that was probably the case. Um, and different churches will do different things. St. Michael, St. George, just down the road from us, has a whole black set of vestments. Anglicans at the Reformation, it was made illegal to use black um, investments. And it's only sort of recently, in the last 150 years, and very high Anglo-Catholic churches become popular to use black again, um, but they have a black set. They look sort of depressing to me, um, but it's becoming a tradition. So it's, it's not uniform, but in most churches, if you walk into a church in early December, um, an Episcopal church, a Lutheran church, even a lot of Methodist churches, definitely a Catholic church, you'll see purple or blue. If you walk in in the Christmas season or in the Easter season, you'll see gold. If you come on the day of Pentecost, what color is Pentecost? Red, yeah. I was amazed how many people at Holy Communion wore red on Pentecost. But it's, it's something that's a little bit flexible. But it's a way of marking time. Um, and it's, it's probably our most common conception of how we mark time. How many of you, before we decided to celebrate today, had heard of Candlemas? Rudy, Sandra, Ellis, nobody else. What about the Feast of the Presentation? Oh, Angie. Yeah, Feast of the Presentation. Anybody grew up Catholic? Oh, Eliana's heard of Feast of the Presentation. How about any of you who have traveled in Latin America heard of Candelaria? That's the name in Spanish. There are whole towns and cathedrals called Candelaria. Um, so those of you who are at 8 o'clock have crib notes, but the feast of the presentation comes how many days after Christmas? 40. Um, and that is probably linked to at least an idea of what the temple traditions were. Why would you give thanks or have a special ceremony 40 days after a child was born? Because they lived. Infant mortality rates were really, really high in the ancient world. And so that a child survived their first month and a half gave you a sense that maybe they were going to survive a little bit longer. You could, you could really dedicate and celebrate this child in a way that early on it was a little nerve-wracking to do. Um, it was also a marker that mom had lived. In the um, ancient world, there were lots of complications with childbirth, and sometimes those complications arose after child, the child had appeared. And so it was sort of a celebration that you'd, you'd cleared the window that they were worried about you. 
Um, and sometimes it was also seen as a, a ritual of purification that, um, that a woman could re-enter public life after the um, Feast of the Presentation is one of the ideas that's out there. That idea gets really, really em emphasized sort of in the post-medieval period in Roman Catholicism. It's why this is one of the big feasts of the Virgin uh, and in a lot of Latin America and in Spain um, for the Candlemas, for the Feast of the Presentation, for the Candelaria, there'll be big processions through the town, sometimes by candlelight, sometimes in the middle of the day, but your virgin statue will process through the village um, because you're giving thanks that, you know, 40 days after she has given birth, Mary is back to work. Um, yeah, we don't tend to emphasize that one so much. Instead, in Anglicanism, in modern Anglicanism, um, Candlemas is getting more popular. It's one of the feasts that we are, are emphasizing. Um, and this idea of Candlemas is, I think, kind of wonderful. Um, I was at a service on the week of Thanksgiving. Folks were invited, but it was a terrible rainstorm. So I think I was the only person from Holy Communion that came, and that's exactly how it should have been because the roads were terrible. But I was down at um, the United Methodist Church on Skinker, Grace United Methodist, for this interfaith Thanksgiving service. And Rory Pickernice, who's a colleague who runs the Jewish Community Relations Council, she's an Orthodox woman, otherwise she would have the title rabbi. Um, if the Orthodox ever decide to ordain women as rabbis, she'll be a rabbi. Um, she'll be among the first. For now, she has this title that's sort of made up, but is kind of wonderful, Maharat. But she's a seminary-educated um, Jewish woman, and she gave uh, the sermon at this interfaith service. And Rory said something really wonderful. Um, she said, at this time of year, sort of late November into early January, almost every major religious tradition that originated in the Northern Hemisphere has a festival of light. Because this time of year, all of us are dealing with just how dark the world has become and we all need a little bit of light. And that was definitely true at Christmas, because Christmas is really close to the darkest day of the year. There's a reason why there's all this candlelight that happens at Christmas. And it's true um, of Hanukkah as well, the festival of light. I'll show you a picture in a moment, but this year Hanukkah and Christmas Eve overlapped, and because we have some wonderful Jewish members of our choir, we got to celebrate Hanukkah between our Christmas Eve services here at Holy Communion as the choir and clergy had dinner. But there's a reason why Rory said that we have festivals, services of the light this time of year. And Candelaria Candlemas sort of extends that. This picture is Ely Cathedral in England. Candlemas is sort of this wonderful old English sounding word. And this is an old English looking cathedral. This is Ely. It has some of the best preserved um, murals on the ceiling of any English cathedral. Most of the cathedrals, all the paint has faded away, but you can see how bright that paint is. And for Candlemas every year, they do an even song, um, and they fill the cathedral with candles. Uh, it became an ancient tradition to bless candles at this time of year. We'll talk a little bit of that as well. But Candlemas is when you celebrate this little story from Luke that we read today in our services, and when you hear this song of Simeon, um, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. It's one of the most, um, it's one of the pieces of scripture that has been most set to music in the whole of scripture. 
because it became part of the Evensong tradition in the great cathedrals of Europe. And so it's been set by all of these great composers, everyone from Arvo Part to William Byrd, all these great composers. I want to play you really quickly a um, version of the uh, Nuke Dimitis, it's called. That's the first two words in Latin. Nuke Dimitis, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. Um, this is done by the choir of St. Michael's Episcopal Church in New York City. And it's called the Appalachian Nuke Dimitis. It's in the sound of that high, lonely Appalachian music.
piece of music, the Nuke Dimittis, is part of our service of Evensong. Um, and if you're ever in England and you want a chance to go into one of the great churches for free, look at when their Evensong is. Uh, oftentimes if you go to like Canterbury Cathedral or even Westminster Abbey or St. Paul's in London, they'll charge you like 20 bucks to get in the front door to come in as a tourist. But if you wait until the afternoon and you say, hey, I'm coming for Evensong, they'll let you in for free because services are free, and you can come and sit up in the great choir up high where they don't let the tourists go most of the time, and you'll hear a version of that, probably not that Appalachian-sounding one in England, but you'll hear a version of that. It's true at the National Cathedral. There's a cycle of churches. I'm not sure whether it's going this year, but um, for a while, the Cathedral, St. Michael, St. George, um, and St. Peter's and Ledoux sort of had this cycle so that there was an Evensong every Sunday night if you wanted to go to Evensong in St. Louis. But Evensong is this Anglican tradition. There's a number of churches in New York that do it as well. Some do it every day, um, like St. Thomas on Fifth Avenue. Uh, some do it once or twice a week, like Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. So Evensong is this chance, but you'll hear this service. It's part of our evening prayer, and while some services have movable, you can change different pieces of music, Evensong always has the Magnificat, Mary's song, My um, Soul Magnifies the Lord, and the Nucdimitus, and the Nucdimitus is always second. But it's this wonderful sort of, um, as we talked about, service of light, Candlemas. It's this sort of, we've come to the part of the year, what else is on February 2nd? What else do we call today? Groundhog Day right? There's a rhyme that the kids are doing downstairs that says something like, if candle mist be windy and cold, uh, then winter's, um, the idea is like winter is about to be over. And then if um, candle mist is sunny and bright, prepare for winter's might. Yeah, so watch out because it's 68 um, and sunny today. But it's sort of like the idea of the groundhog seeing his shadow. There's something about this period of the year where we're getting ready for the light to start coming back. And Candlemas sort of marks that. Um, these are all pictures from Christmas Eve this year. I stole that one from you, Courtney, of you and Vivi, um, from your Instagram feed. But this idea of light plays big in the year. We're familiar with other rhythms, right? Um, this is Holy Week, which is coming up. 
later in April. And, you know, more services of light. We do light in a slightly different way around Easter time. Um, but also these cycles of services, this idea that there's a rhythm to the year and there are certain special moments where we focus in and spend some time. Um, we'll talk a little bit about Lent. But I wanted to notice that practicing sacred time is not just something that we do at church. Of course we do it at church and we spend money to have vestments and we mark things special ways and there's special prayers. And we try to keep track of how things are different at church. But you can practice sacred time at home. Um, we, this is a stock picture. I couldn't find one with blue candles, but a stock picture of a family lighting their advent wreath together. How many of you have a practice of lighting an advent wreath at home? Yeah, yeah. So the question is, how do you do things like that on the regular? Um, are there routines that you build into your life, um, whether that's your individual life, uh, finding a time for prayer in the day that is regular, um, lighting candle at dinner if you have a chance to do so, um, and saying a prayer um, are there things that you do in particular seasons? Uh, is Advent is probably the most common, and families tend to have practices around Advent, um, whether that's an Advent calendar or an Advent wreath, that there's some practice in there. What are some other ways you could introduce sacred time, set-apart time at home? Um, are there things you could do with food, with art, um, ways of gathering people? Um, and I want to notice that it may be something that we do particularly in the church, and there are certain resources we can give you, like blessed chalk to mark your home for Epiphany, or today blessed candles if you want to have candles blessed and take them home. But there's other ways that this plays out. This, is a, this idea of set-apart sacred time is something that's true in religion, but it's just basically human. How many of you have heard this word, huga? Yeah. It's coming into the consciousness. I'm surprised the Minnesotan didn't raise her hand. Uh, sorry. It's a big deal in Minnesota because there are a lot of Norwegians up there. But huga is this, and Danish people and Swedes, but huga is an old Norwegian word, and it's become really popular in recent years. The New Yorker declared 2016 the year of huga. Um, but it's this custom. It, it translates roughly to something like coziness, comfort, fun, and togetherness. And it comes from that region in the world up there in Scandinavia where the winters are long and dark and cold, and you kind of have two options, which is why it's big in Minnesota as well, where the winter is long and dark and cold. But you kind of have two options for how you're going to engage. Are you going to just be miserable all winter, which is usually the way Ellis will tell you that I deal with things. Or are you going to light candles and eat good food and turn off your devices regularly and spend time in front of fireplaces eating candy and spending time together? Denmark, for Europe, has the highest number of candles sold and the highest amount of candy sold of any country in Western Europe. And it's because of huga. It's because people choose to take this time when so many people hibernate when it's really hard to get people out of their houses, and they light candles and they eat candy and they spend time together. And the late, the new thing is also to like turn off your phones so that you're just present to your family. So could you build a weekly celebration of huga into the way that you encounter winter? 
could you mark off some time to be together? Um, you might be surprised what it does for your psyche in a period like these long winters. The other thing that I like to bring up is sometimes the practice of time, how we set aside sacred time, can also be a question of taking time out of regular life. Um, going on pilgrimage or retreat. This is a picture Ellis and I this summer before Silas was part of our life, got to go to Mexico City and go to the Basilica of the Virgin of Guadalupe. So this is the modern Basilica of the Virgin of Guadalupe down there in Mexico City, which for me was a big pilgrimage moment uh, in the midst of a really nice vacation. But where do you take some time out? Um, that can also be a part of how we think about setting aside sacred time. So we'll come back together for questions, um, but I want to do two things. I'm going to give you questions to discuss on your own. But last week, our annual meeting was running a bit long, and so I didn't get to show you a slideshow that I wanted to show. And I thought, as long as we're talking about sacred time, this is a show that shows you sort of what our 2019 was like around here at Holy Communion. So I thought I'd show that, because it sort of fits with what we're talking about today. Then I'll give you questions to discuss at your tables. What stories did you tell? Were there... Anybody been to one of the great festivals? Anybody have a story about a great festival? Grace. Let me give you the mic. Um, so when I studied abroad in France, I happened to wander into Notre Dame Cathedral on Good Friday um, when they bring out the crown of thorns relic and process it around the entire cathedral. Um, and it was totally accidental. Yeah. Yeah, but it was kind of amazing, right? Oh, yeah. And how many people were in there? It was standing room only. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally packed. I, th I think a lot of people found out about that relic um, when the fire happened, and the fact that they saved it was a big deal. But, um, but it's one of the traditions of Notre Dame is that they've got the crown of thorns relic. Rudy. When I was growing up in Minnesota, I lived just north of the Twin City area, and up in St. John, up in St. Cloud, there's an abbey called St. John's. And one of the greatest things I loved to do it was either on Christmas, maybe um, Easter vigil or Easter morning, I would travel up to St. John's to watch the monks do their service. Yeah. And it was Easter morning was the most spectacular out of all of them. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, that was that was something that will always stick with me. Others, great festival stories? So me and Willard in Brooklyn happened to drive to Canada. You can't hear me. Happened to drive to Canada, and we um, went to Carnival. Hmm. And it was fabulous. I'd never seen anything like it. Yep. And it didn't matter what size you were or whatever, but these women had on these feathers and colors, and it was beautiful. Yeah, it's amazing how sometimes religious feasts become as big out in the streets as they are in the churches. When I used to live in Trinidad, uh, I enjoyed Diwali, the mm. festival of light. And Talk about Diwali a little bit, yeah. Um, decorates the entire community uh, with lights, with scenes of the light versus the dark and all the food. Um, the streets are always filled. But it was, it was actually a very nice feeling. Actually, good food. Mm -hmm. Any others? 
Susan. That just made me think of, um, there's a neighborhood a few blocks west of here where Lisa Hummel lives. I don't think Lisa's here today. Um, where they do luminarias. Yeah. Um, and the entire, yours does it too? Okay, so it's more than one neighborhood in U City. Um, and Say what a luminario is for those that don't know. Um, they're like little brown lunch bags that you would use filled with sand and candles. So it lights it up. Um, and we lived across the street from that neighborhood and it was just great to go walk through and see everybody participating. Yeah, that's my dad grew up in New Mexico. We spent a lot of Christmases down in New Mexico and everywhere in Albuquerque and Santa Fe, those little, they call them either luminarios or farolitos, but the little paper bags. We've done them here a few times as well if the weather has let us. remembered this one when I was in college which was a church related college we were always on campus at Easter and uh, about three o'clock or four in the morning a.m. there would be trumpeters up in the bell tower who would blow their trumpets and wake everybody up on campus hopefully and then we would process out not in a procession but we would all go out to the amphitheater in the college woods for a sunrise service mm -hmm. So that was pretty I lived in a rural uh, area in northwest Arkansas, and the, there weren't any Episcopal churches close by, but there was a very uh, giving uh, Baptist church, and on uh, Christmas and New Year's, they would gather uh, food for the uh, shut-ins and for the those living alone, and... Uh, we would visit the uh, hermit, and uh, one Christmas Eve, uh, well, we had to cross the trestle, railroad trestle in the dark, and some of them didn't want to do that, and, and uh, the others went and sang Christmas carols around his shack, and um, one year they gave him a, a nanny goat, and unfortunately the goat ate the tar paper on his house. Oh, no. <laughs> Well, the spirit was good. <laughs> so it, it's often one of those things, and it's, it's something worth considering if you are a person who likes to travel, gets to travel. Um, but to get to witness one of those great festivals, it's actually something as a country I don't think we do as well. Um, we have certain festivals. Today is one. What's the festival today? Candlemas. There's another festival that's probably more popular that more people are going to watch today, which is Super Bowl. Um, I had a religious studies professor in college who said, you know, if, if they study our culture 5,000 years from now, they're really going to think that we were all, like that the sports that are, you know, especially football, we're going to think about it the way that they think that the Mayans had, um, that their games were part of their religion. You, you can map religion over the whole of the Super Bowl if you want to. There's all this festival and pageantry and rhythm and cult and community that gets built by it. But thinking about travel around a festival to get to see the way that a festival happens um, is something worth doing because it's something that I think we don't do as well, um, at least in... I, I, maybe it's something to do with North America being such a melting pot, but, um, but there, it's sort of our festivals are a little bit... 
Uh, they're not as big as they are in other cultures necessarily. What about your family, your own practice? Are there any ways of holding time sacred? What rhythms help keep you grounded? Gretchen. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. Say it. Well, to be honest with you, when I read rhythm, or when Mike said rhythm, I thought of Motown. Hmm. I mean, I just, Motown has always grounded me. I play the Temptations Christmas music during the year because it grounds me. Um, and that's what I thought of. I'm sure that's not what you meant. <laughs> that's what I came up with. Sometimes not what you meant is the best kind of answer, though. What other rhythms or practices? My partner's half Jewish. So one thing that we try to do with his faith um, for as much as he practices on Friday night when we have our evening meal, which we usually eat at home, we always try to do the lighting of the candles and just spend time in reflection, either with something from a poem all the way to something from maybe the prayer book, all the way to something to his Jewish um, upbringing. And it sort of centers us for what we had done over the week and gives us a chance after dinner or during dinner to talk of how the week went. I knew some other people in Minnesota, when they went home, every Friday night was their happy dance. Mm. The weekend was to an end. And those people are no longer with us, but I can remember being at their house when that would happen. Others? I'm sure this is not what you meant. No, that's all right. But when I, just listening to others, um, I, I think that in my family growing up, there were two times that were sacred in the sense that they were set apart. Mm. Um, dinner. Yep. Family dinner every evening. It was just the time for us to connect. Uh, it, was, it had a huge influence on me uh, growing up. Just that was the time we all sat down, usually in the kitchen, around the table as a family, and we talked about our day. And it was just, it was wonderful. And we are trying to recreate that in our very busy lives with, you know, now that I have a family of my own. And the other sacred time growing up, many, many Sundays, we did not go to church. Um, but Sunday mornings were the time when I was a little girl in Liberia when I would wake up to the sound of jazz. My father is mm. still today a huge uh, jazz aficionado, and we would listen for hours to all kinds of usually jazz music, and that was a, a real time for bonding. So. Well, and, and I want to piggyback on what Shirley said, partly because she's on Vestry, and so I can piggyback on things. And... That, that sense of like, how many of you have had, um, even though you're Episcopalians, a sense of guilt over what you should be doing for a rhythm or a practice? It's okay to raise your hands. I definitely have had that. I, I have a spiritual director, I've had a spiritual director who has said to me, okay, try to let go of that sense of guilt about what you should be doing. Instead, when you are able to gather as a family for dinner, experience that as a gift. Because the more that you can move toward it as a, something you're looking forward to instead of guilting yourself for having not done it, the more likely you are to establish it as a rhythm. Um, and, and maybe instead of saying, you know, we're going to get this to work every night, 
finding some kind of rhythm that will work for a season, make it through 40 days of Lent and get three nights a week of dinner together, something like that. But, but you're allowed to mess with practices. Life is more complicated today uh, than it was in our parents' generations, than it was um, especially in the first century. There's a lot more demands on our time, um, which means we have to be creative. Sometimes family dinner um, for us also means family dinner and the phones are in another room. You know, but, but it can also mean that family dinner happens a couple nights a week and that that's enough. Others? What about that last question? As we approach the great season of Lent, are there disciplines you might like to take on? Lisa. So um, I grew up in a really uh, sort of traditional family, traditional in like, the gender roles so mom always had dinner on the table every night at five and it was always very complex I can't believe she did that much work <laughs> growing up um but the one thing that she did sort of for herself was every Sunday night she would not cook mm -hmm. and we would just have popcorn for dinner on Sunday nights and um at popcorn and like Kool-Aid or you know if she was really feeling it she might get the grapes out so you like fruit and but um I, <laughs> and i i think that that was such a like a, a revolutionary thing for her to do yeah. in the culture that we grew up in and um that's something that i really am, have been thinking about this year and going into lent and i'm raising three girls and so i want them to see that modeled as well that revolutionary like i'm going to rest moment and um, that rest is sacred and is beautiful and is something to be treasured. And so in the season of Lent, I've been thinking about ways to model that for, my, for our girls. So I love that because that's both a giving something up. I'm not going to cook this complicated dinner. <laughs> and it's a sacred practice that the kids are going to, I mean, like, who's not, what kid is not going to be excited about popcorn for dinner? Um, so it's, it's a both and that's really wonderful. I'm going to let us pause there. Um, I would love your help. We have 20 minutes before the next service. And because we're doing a Candlemas procession, I do need a little help. On the table at the front here, we have hand candles, but they need to be assembled. It's just put the candle in the holder so that people don't get wax on themselves. I'd love some help with that. And I'd love some help. Um, we need to take the back two rows of chairs and stack them and pull them out of the church so that folks have room to gather at the back. Um, so if I could have some help with those two things, I would love that. Next week, the forum, we're really excited about, um, both at the forum and in the evening, we're going to have Denise Lieberman with us. Uh, she's a legal expert on questions of voter suppression. Uh, next Sunday evening, we're going to have a screening of the film Rigged, the voter suppression handbook, uh, with Cole Rena here at Holy Communion at 5.30, right? Um, but Denise Lieberman will be with us here at 9.15 as well to sort of whet your appetite for the movie, or if you can't make it to the movie, we'll get to hear from her as we talk about not just black history, but what is some of the reality of voter suppression that's still going on now. So we talk about the importance of the civil rights movement, the people that gave their life, gave their time, gave their energy, risked themselves um, so that folks could have the vote. How can we ensure that that investment continues to pay off today and stop voter suppression?